A reading from the 27th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew, verses 22 through 26. Pilate said to them, Then what should I do with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? All of them said, Let him be crucified. Then he asked, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted, all the more, Let him be crucified. So, when Pilate saw that he could do nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took some water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Then the people as a whole answered, His blood be on us and on our children. So he released Barabbas for them, and after flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. Here ends the reading. According to Italian novelist Umberto Eco, the world of literature is divided right down the middle between texts that are closed and texts that are open. Closed texts are those forms of literature, stories, films, poems, that guide the reader to a relatively narrow range of interpretation. Echo uses the example of a James Bond novel. You're going to get what the author wants you to get. The closed text does not call for cooperative activity on the part of the reader. According to Echo, the closed text can make a compelling argument, but it makes for unremarkable and unengaging storytelling. The stories that stick with us are the open texts, the narratives that draw us into rich and complex worlds. The open text invites ambiguity and allows for more than one legitimate interpretation. Its meaning is not spoon-fed to the reader. Rather, the lesson of the text is reader-activated. The open text makes for great and enduring literature because it makes room for the reader as an agent of the text. I think Matthew's gospel does just that. Matthew invites us in to participate in and with the life of Jesus. The consequence can be rewarding. As we begin to understand our place in Jesus' story, we in turn start to see where Jesus is at work in our own lives. Yet we who have received the gift of this open text, a text that we call the good news, must be careful. Luke tells us that from everyone to whom much has been given, much will be required. As agents of this story granted a certain amount of interpretive freedom, we can easily find ourselves trapped by the text. If we are not careful, we find ourselves trapped up in anti-Jewish readings of Matthew's gospel. For centuries, his blood be on us and on our children has been interpreted by anti-Semites as implying a kind of genealogical guilt among Jews. Gerald O'Collins argues that this verse has done more than any other sentence in the New Testament to feed the fires of anti-Semitism. And on account of this text, generations of Jews have been slandered, persecuted, or slaughtered as Christ-killers or God-killers. But the bigots who have weaponized this text for their racial hatred in an ironic turn of events are themselves trapped by the text. The 11 Jews killed last year at Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh have more in common with the first century Palestinian Jew on the cross than does the Christian terrorist who killed them. In their wounds, 
we see the wounds of Christ. And he who killed those 11 Jews in Pittsburgh much more closely resembles the insatiably violent crowd calling for crucifixion. Now perhaps we've escaped this first trap. Perhaps we know that the crowd is a symbol for every lynching mob in history, every pogrom against Jews and Muslims, every persecution of those on the margins of society. Perhaps we have turned from consciously oppressing our most vulnerable neighbors. Perhaps we have escaped the trap of the crowd, but are instead caught up in Pilate's predicament. Like Pilate, we want a clean conscience. But, as Brazilian educator and philosopher Paulo Freire has said, washing one's hands of the conflict between the powerful and the powerless is to side with the powerful, not to be neutral. The text traps us into thinking that we might possibly scrub our hands clean. Nevertheless, it is still Pilate who, after washing his hands, has Jesus flogged and hands him over to his execution. I have never killed anyone, and yet my taxes fund a military-industrial complex that kills people in Yemen. I have never stolen anything, and yet my dependence on fossil fuels is a form of theft against future generations. I do not own slaves, and yet my phone was made by exploited sweatshop workers in Southeast Asia. It's not hard to understand why so many young folks these days are saying that there is no ethical consumption under capitalism. In our society, there is no amount of water that can wash our hands clean of sin. Now perhaps we are good Presbyterians and elude or at least recognize this second trap as well. Perhaps we know all about human depravity. We know full well that we are not without sin. We understand that we cannot wash the blood of Jesus from our hands. And perhaps we have guarded well against this first trap, against anti-Jewish appropriations of the text. Perhaps we have taken seriously our complicity in the face of anti-Semitism and all of its derivative forms of xenophobia and racism. Even so, there is a third trap in Matthew's 27th chapter hiding in plain sight. Pilate has given the crowd a choice. Either Barabbas or Jesus the Messiah will be pardoned and released. As agents of this open text and as good moral Christians, we naturally hope and pray for the exoneration of Christ, the innocent Lamb of God. And he is innocent. But in doing so, whether we realize it or not, we end up hoping and rooting for the execution of Barabbas. Matthew refers to Barabbas as a notorious prisoner. Mark is more specific. Barabbas is an insurrectionary. According to the imperial logic of the Roman state, Barabbas therefore deserved to die on the cross, a humiliating death reserved exclusively for two kinds of convicts, runaway slaves and revolutionaries. It wasn't the murder charges that brought about crucifixion. It was insurrection. But Jürgen Moltmann shows that Jesus, too, was a rebel in the eyes of the empire. Jesus never took up arms against Rome, yet he was seen by political authorities as a real threat. Every single word that Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God contradicted the authoritarian reign of Caesar. And anyone who referred to Jesus as Lord or Son of God could no longer say the same of the emperor. According to the state, 
Our Jesus was killed just as much a criminal as that other one would have been, Barabbas. The Romans had every reason to kill them both. In September 2016, in my hometown of Charlotte, North Carolina, a police officer shot and killed Keith Lamont Scott, a 43-year-old African-American man and father of seven. Bystanders claim Scott had a book in his hand while he was sitting in the car. When he was murdered, police insisted that it had been a gun. But we must ask if it was a gun, was Scott's death somehow justified? He was inside his car, he wasn't threatening anyone, and North Carolina is an open carry state. Scott wasn't killed because he had a gun or because he had a book. He was killed because in the eyes of the state, his black body had been pathologized as violent and threatening. When we resist Jesus' crucifixion on the grounds that he was innocent alone, what we end up saying is that some people deserve crucifixion. But God does not call us to crucify the right people. God calls us to cease crucifying. The task of the Christian, according to John Sabrino, is to take the crucified people down from the cross. We are not called to simply outfit police officers with body cameras, but to turn our guns into plowshares. We are not called to merely limit civilian casualties in war, but to stop dropping bombs. We are not called to simply remove the innocent from death row, but to get rid of the death penalty altogether. We are not called to merely provide a path to citizenship for dreamers, but to let every last refugee in. Now, I don't know if there is any way for us to escape the traps of Matthew's gospel unscathed. But if there is, it will depend upon our commitment to dismantling every system that crucifies the poor and the vulnerable, even and especially the ones that the state defines as guilty. In the words of Thomas Merton, our job is to love others without stopping to ask whether or not they are worthy. That is not our business, and in fact, it is nobody's business. What we are asked to do is to love, and this love itself will render both ourselves and our neighbors worthy. Amen.